Happy Mother's Day, Mom. My mom watches every week, uh, and so just so thankful for her. Here's my goal this morning. My goal is that this would be a life-giving message. Life-giving because it is from the text that is life-giving. Life-giving kind of like a good night's sleep is life-giving. Are you old enough to realize how life-giving a good night of sleep is? I think when you're young, you just take it for granted. You sleep better than you'll ever sleep in your whole life, and you don't, you're not even thankful for it. Life-giving like a good night of sleep. Life-giving like a good meal. Isn't that good meal life-giving when you've been hungry and dragging and stressed and you slow down for an unhurried, enjoyable, well-put-together meal? Isn't that life-giving? Better than that is a life-giving meal with friends and good conversation. Isn't that life-giving? I want this to be more life-giving than any of that stuff. And if we understand it, it will be. So if you have your Bibles with you and you want to open them with me, we're in the book of John. John chapter 20. Wrapping up John chapter 20, we're in verse 30 and 31. We're only going to do one sentence today. So I should have you out of here by noon or 12.30. We'll see. Usually the shorter the text is, the longer the sermon is for some reason, and I think that's because the preacher thinks he can talk for so much longer about it because he's reading so much less. I don't know. But um, this is really, really important stuff because John is summing up the book. He's bringing all the threads of the whole book together in this one sentence. So before we read that, let me pray. Lord, this is your book, and we're your folk. So, Lord, stand in front of me while I'm in front of them. Speak over me while I speak to them. Do this for their sake. Do this for your glory's sake. Do this for the good of our neighborhood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John is summing up the book. He's told the story of Jesus showing up and Jesus ministering, Jesus going to Jerusalem, Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus rising again. On the third day, he's told the whole story. He's told of Jesus reappearing after he's been raised from the dead, appearing to the disciples. And this is what we've been talking about with meeting resurrected Jesus. We have one more week as we finish up the book next week. But John pauses a second and tells you why he wrote. And this is why he wrote. This is his why for writing the book. This is, this is it. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. It's easy to run right by that word signs, but that is an important word. So when you're driving on a road trip and you are really worried about getting gas, have you ever been there? One time we were, I think, coming back from out west, and it was like 2 in the morning, because probably because Cheyenne was in a hurry to get home. 
because she's really driven like that. You're laughing because you know that's not true. You know who the... We're both driven, but in different ways. And so anyway, we are driven. It was like 2 a.m. Everything was closed, and we're running out of gas. And finally, we see a sign for a gas station. The sign doesn't do me any good, but the gas at the gas station is really important. I mean, you know, when you're really hungry, and you're driving down the road, and you're really, really hungry, and it's really time to eat, and you see a sign for a restaurant that you like, and like, oh, thank you. It's not the sign that does it. It's what the sign points to. When you've really got to go to the bathroom really, really, really bad, and you're running through the grocery store looking for the bathroom, like, i got to find it quick, and you finally see the sign. It's not the sign that helps you. It's what the sign points to. And this is a book of signs that points to something. Now, I, I ask... Um, Melissa, to put in uh, the bulletin, I know she did, in the bulletin you have a handout that has on the top of it the seven signs in the book, that the signs, these are the signs in the book that um, helps give order to the book. So there's seven signs that Jesus does that prove something. Remember, signs point to something. We're about to see what that is. But if you want to go back and look at those signs, you can see them as you look them up, as you follow that handout in the bulletin for the seven signs. So Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. So John's like, look, I left a lot of stuff out. He did many other signs. And they're not in this book. Are you okay with that? That Jesus did lots of stuff that isn't written down? You know that? Lots of stuff. Jesus did, not in here. John says that again in chapter 21, verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John's saying, look, Jesus did lots of signs, lots of stuff, and I didn't write them down. I did write down seven, though, and you have those in your handout. And these seven are written for a reason, but these are written. So, there's a lot of stuff I didn't include. This is why these are included. That, so that you may, what's that next word? Believe. Now, this is, this is what you've got to know is at the center of the Christian faith is belief. See, a lot of people think that the Christian life is like a ladder. That if you are good enough, you can climb your way up to heaven and maybe then God will like you. A lot of people think of the Christian life, Christian life like a ladder or like a workout plan. Like, do these things, be good enough, God will like you. Or they think of it like a set of rules, a set of commandments, that if you're good enough, you get in. John would say that is 100% wrong. You're dead wrong if you think that. The Christian life is not a ladder that you climb up. It's not a set of rules that you keep so that God will like you. That's not what it is. 
That's one way to get it wrong, what the Christian life is. That's not believing. That's a set of rules. Christian life is also not mental assent. You know what mental assent is? Mental assent is like, for me, I give mental assent to the idea that there are kangaroos in Australia. That doesn't change my life at all. I just, like, people tell me there are kangaroos in Australia, and I'll be like, okay. And then I go on with life, right? No, when I was in elementary school, I gave mental assent to the idea that Pluto was a planet. Then I was told that I was wrong. And I didn't care at all. Now I give mental assent to the idea that Pluto is not a planet. And I don't care. You can call it a planet or not a planet or whatever you want to call it. I don't care. That's the idea of mental assent. Mental assent is like saying, okay, well, that's fine. I guess, I guess that's true. You know, like, I, I guess I believe that or, or not. It doesn't matter. It, it's not a life-changing belief. See, when we're talking about belief, the kind of belief in the Bible, what we're talking about is life-changing belief, life-changing faith. This is something, this is truth that you believe in that changes your life. Okay, so, so a while ago, I had read and read and read about meal prep. And didn't really, didn't, gave mental assent to the idea that meal prep might be a good idea. But then finally, started to try it. And so now, I eat the same thing for breakfast just about every day. I eat the same thing for lunch just about every day. And you know what that proves? Not just that I'm boring, but also... That I believe in meal prep. You know, I exercise just about every day. You know what that proves? Not just that I have kind of borderline hyperactive and have to do something with myself, but mostly that I believe in the benefits of exercise. See, belief motivates behavior. You know what you really believe based on what you do. You know what you don't believe based on what you don't do. You only do the stuff you believe. And you don't do the stuff you don't believe. And what John is saying is here's the goal. This is why all of this is written. This is all written to help you believe. Believe in a way that changes your life. Not mere mental assent, but belief in a way that changes your life. Not a set of rules, but belief in a way that changes your life. So what are you supposed to believe? Well, he tells us. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you go, well, duh, of course. Who doesn't know that? But let me help you with that, because this was more earth-shattering than you can imagine. So, all the way back, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God comes and rescues them and brings them into the promised land. And They don't do a good job conquering it, taking it, but they're there, and they're ruled by a set of judges. And so, all these different 
kind of splotches up here represent different judges and different areas that they had influence in. The yellow arrow will always be Jerusalem, up there where Jerusalem is. And it was kind of chaotic. If you read the book of Judges, you see it was pretty chaotic. And the people come to a place where they're like, we need a king. We really need a king because all the other nations around us have a king. And all the other nations have armies. And we don't have a standing army. We just have chaos. And Samuel says to them, you don't have a king because you rejected God as king. And you have chaos because you rejected God as king. But that's beside the point. We're going to get you a king. And so they get King Saul. And this is how much area King Saul conquers, consolidates. And then after Saul comes who? David. And so David really expands the kingdom. David is the model king. David loves the people. The people love David. David cares for the people. He is a good king. Good king. His son Solomon comes into power and expands it even further. But his taxes are heavy. He is a hard king to have because he's uh, he just taxes so much and builds so much and doesn't care about the people. Then, under, after Solomon, the kingdom splits. And there's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. And the people are like, if only we had another king like David. But you know what happens instead? The Assyrians come to power. And the Assyrians come in and destroy almost everything. They they destroy the northern kingdom completely, and the northern kingdom never really comes back. The southern kingdom, where Jerusalem is, gets completely decimated, except for Jerusalem. Jerusalem remains intact. And you know what they're saying the whole time? They're saying, I wish we had another king like David. God promised us another king like David. God promised us one of David's sons, and one day we'll have a good king. One day we'll have a Messiah, and we'll be the one in charge again. We'll be on top of the pile again. We'll be big and important again, rather than getting crushed. You know, as the Assyrians were in power, they were crushed. And you know who came after the Assyrians? This, this messianic king, right? No, no, the Babylonians came after the Assyrians. And the Babylonians did destroy Jerusalem. Did leave Jerusalem a smoking pile of rubble. And the people are like, if only we had another king. A king like David. A Messiah. If only we had a Messiah. You know, God promised us a Messiah. We'll have one one day. You know who came after the Babylonians? The Persians. Continued to crush and oppress Jerusalem. And the people said, well, you know, someday we're going to have a king like David. Someday, someday one of David's sons is going to rule. God promised us. God promised us we'd, he'd be king. That we'd have a good king. You know who came after the Persians? Alexander the Great. And the Greeks. And the people are like, someday we're going to have a king, a king like David. Someday we're going to be the ones on top of the pile. Someday we're not going to be dominated by these foreigners anymore. You know who came after Alexander the Great? One of Alexander's generals came after Alexander the Great as they divided up the kingdom. And the people said, one day we'll have a king. One day we'll have a messiah. 
One day this will be all right again, and one day we'll climb back on top of the pile. One day Messiah will come, the Christ will come. And you know who came next? The Romans. The Romans came next. And the people said, one day we'll have the son of David. He'll show up. One day the Christ will come. One day we'll be on top of the pile. And John says, this is written so that you will believe that Jesus is that king. That Jesus is that long-awaited Messiah. The Messiah that you have been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for. He is God himself shown up to save you. And you know, not everyone could buy this or understand this because this was not the kind of king or the kind of Messiah they thought they needed. But you know, it turns out that being on top of the pile like Rome is not as life-giving as they thought. Because because you can be on top of the pile and still be enslaved to sin. You can be on top of the pile and still die and go to hell. You can be on top of the pile and still be completely dissatisfied, unsatisfied with life. And here's the good news. The good news is that this warrior king came to finally deal with sin. And by dealing with sin, he took sins, the whole, sins of the whole world onto himself, taking the punishment for our sin, paying the debt for our sin, taking the sin sickness for our sin onto himself and dying in our place, conquering sin and taking the sting out of death. This is what Jesus came to do. And John is saying, these things are written so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He has defeated an enemy bigger than Rome. He has defeated sin and death. And this is life-giving. This is life-giving. So, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, here's my question for you. My question is, how is this life-giving? How is this life-giving? Well, the first, the first thing to notice is that this is eternal life-giving. This means that you have life that goes on forever. So John 3.16, you know it. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It means that he has conquered sin and death so that you can have life in his name if you believe this. But you know, that's not all it means. I should say, not but, but and. And that's not all it means. It means more than that, too. So Jesus is walking with the disciples, and they come to this well in Samaria, and he's sitting there talking to this lady who's tried everything. She's tried everything. She's tried it all, and none of it works, and none of it is satisfying. 
And Jesus says to her, the water that I will give to him or you, because he's talking in general, the water that I will give him or give you will become in him or in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's like, you've gone through life and life has been so ridiculously unsatisfying. I'm going to put a spring of life in you that wells up and overflows. See, turns out that Jesus is life. Jesus is life. This is something that I have to remind myself again and again because I'm so short-sighted and so worldly. Like my mind, I mean, it's just, I'm just so, I wish it wasn't true, but I'm so shaped by the world. So, so there, there's stuff that I think, okay, if I got these two more pieces of weightlifting equipment, my life would probably be complete, and I probably wouldn't want anything else ever again. Is that true? Of course it's not true. And I tell myself, Nathan, the abundance of life does not come in the possessions that we have. That's Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus said that. Like, it's not true that if you just collect a few more things, you'll be happy. It's not true, but we kind of, we have a tendency to believe that. You know, sometimes we think, you know, if I could just, if I could just own this next piece of property, then, then I'd be happy. Sometimes we think, you know, if I could just get this next position, position at work, comes with a raise, comes with an office, comes with this, comes with that, comes with benefits, then I'd be happy. That would be true life. Sometimes we think, you know, if I could just, just have the right people in my life. Just get married, just have kids, just have my kids move out. If I could just have grandkids, if I could just this, just that, just the other, that would be life. Will it? Will that do it? Will that do it? See, when we're dissatisfied with life and we're always wanting more, what Jesus says to us, when we're dissatisfied, he says to us, I am the bread of life. We go to him for satisfying life. When we are Sad because all we can see is darkness and all we can hear is bad news and we see all that is broken in the world and everything seems so incredibly dark. Jesus says to us, I am the light of the world. So we go to him for life that is the light of men. When we're not sure whether we're in or not, or can ever be let in. When we feel like we're not part of it. When we're on the outside. Jesus says to us, I am the door. So go to him. And he'll let you in. When we feel like everyone is trying to use us. 
everyone is trying to take advantage of us, that no one really cares about us. They're just trying to get stuff from us. Jesus says to us, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Go to him for life. When we feel like life is pointless and stupid because we're here and then we die and 10 years later, no one remembers. And if it's not 10 years, then 20 years. And if not 20 years, then 40 years. And we're here and we're gone and no one cares and who cares? Jesus says to us, I am the resurrection and the life. There is hope beyond this life. This life is not all there is. It is life-giving to know that there is eternal life. When we're confused and frustrated and lost, boy, we're coming out of that, aren't we? confused and frustrated and lost, and what's next? Jesus says to us, I am the way and the truth and the life. We go to him for life. When we feel utterly disconnected from God and from everything else, Jesus says to us, I am the true vine. Here's, here's what I'm saying. Jesus is life. Go to him for life. Stop settling for anything less than Jesus. Everything else will leave you unsatisfied, a little disappointed, less than full. But these things are written. These things are written so that you may believe. Not just give mental assent to, but the kind of belief you actually act on. But these things are written so that you may believe. Not a set of rules that you better keep or you're not in. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited King, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we would believe that you are life and that we would go to you for life. That we would not settle for anything less, anything other than you. Give us life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.